This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 296th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we are featuring a location in a country I don't believe we've ever gone to, and that is Belgium. I do know I have some listeners there because I have gotten a review from Belgium, so hopefully you're listening. Belgium has several languages, and for that reason, I'm not quite sure how to say some of the cities that I'm going to be sharing with you. One of them in particular is spelled Y-P-R-E-S, and there were literally five different ways to say it on the internet. I've chosen the French way to say it, so I'll apologize now that some of the pronunciations are probably going to be a little bit off. We're going to be talking about the Battle of Passchendaele. This was a battle that took place during World War I, and it was one of the bloodiest of the entire war. For that reason, we definitely have some hauntings going on in this area. This location was suggested by listener Brian Morse. There might be some of you that are like, I've never heard of that place before, but I bet you've heard of Flanders Fields. We'll get into talking about that in just a moment, but before we do that, let's welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Jacqueline, Alexandra, Suzanne with no E, Myra, and Deborah with an A-H. Welcome, ladies. And now, this moment, Noddy. The moment Noddy was suggested by Jennifer White. Myrtle Corbin was born in Tennessee in 1868. She was born with a very rare condition known as dipagus. Myrtle had a twin that was a part of her, not like a conjoined twin, but as a malformed lower half. You see, Myrtle had four legs. The two middle legs were shorter, and the feet on each only had three toes. Myrtle could control them, but she couldn't use them for walking. She had a problem with one of her longer legs as well, as she had a clubbed foot, as was the case for so many people like Myrtle who lived during the 1800s. She was an oddity who would find a home in a freak show. Her first stop was with none other than P.T. Barnum, and then later she moved on to Ringling Brothers and finally ended up at Coney Island. She was very popular and earned $450 a week. She married Dr. Clinton Bicknell when she was 19 and actually was able to get pregnant and gave birth five times. The couple had four daughters and a son, and it's believed that three of her children were born from one womb and the other two were from another womb. Yes, Myrtle had two sets of sexual organs, and in the book Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine by George M. Gould and Walter L. Pyle, it was reported that both vaginas menstruated, so clearly both functioned normally. 
Myrtle lived to the age of 60 and passed away on May 6, 1928. A human born with four legs certainly is odd. Hey, Mort, what are you listening to there? History goes bump on the radio public app. Oh, cool. That's a great app. You know why? Because I can hear myself on it? No. When people listen to us using it, Radio Public throws a few cents at us. So for people who can't afford to support the show, they can download the app for free and listen and be supporting the show. And if they have an extra buck or two, the app has a drop-down menu where they can leave a tip. It works on Android and iOS. Does that mean I get a raise? You mean that subscription to Ghoulish Girls Monthly isn't enough? Ha, ha, ha. And now, this month in history. of April on the 5th in 1976, Howard Hughes dies. Howard Hughes was born Howard Robard Hughes Jr. in Texas in 1905. He was born into some money, but would go on to make himself incredibly rich as a manufacturer, aviator, and motion picture producer and director. He was not only one of the richest men in America, he was incredibly eccentric. He produced many movies, usually running over budget and including risque material. Two of those movies were the Academy Award-winning Two Arabian Nights in 1927 and Hell's Angels. During World War II, he started manufacturing military aircraft, but these ran over Schedule II and were not completed before the war ended. While testing one of the planes, the Hughes XF-11, Hughes had a near-fatal crash that left him in chronic pain for the rest of his life. Another plane he built, the Hercules, came to be known as the Spruce Goose and was flown only once for one mile. It was an eight-engine wooden behemoth that was supposed to carry 750 passengers. Hughes' eccentricities included going into complete seclusion at times, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and he was a germaphobe. In 1953, he established the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. In his latter years, he moved around a lot, going from the Bahamas to Nicaragua to Canada to England to Las Vegas and finally to Mexico. While in Mexico, he starved himself to emaciation and was heavily addicted to drugs. He set out to seek medical treatment in 1976, but died on the plane ride from Alcapoco, Mexico to Houston, Texas. They say it was 103 days in hell. Any amount of time during any war could be deemed hell. The Battle of Passchendaele in Belgium during World War I brought a new definition of hell during war. The battle would be one of the bloodiest of the war, killing half a million men. 
The weather and mud at the field would contribute to dealing that heavy blow. Battlefields of all kinds seem to be epicenters for the paranormal. The blood becomes a part of the earth and seems to cry out from the afterlife. This area of ground would come to be known as Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high if ye break faith with us who die we shall not sleep though poppies grow in flanders fields this was a poem written by canadian physician lieutenant colonel john mccrae and you probably have all heard it at least once this poem as you heard there talks about poppies poppies they're weeds not really anything special about them. At least there wasn't until war. It was during the Napoleonic War that poppies first became associated with fallen soldiers and memorializing them. But Flanders Fields would bring red poppies into the limelight of remembrance ceremonies and days. You see, dead bodies on a field make it unsuitable for growing many plants because of the high lime content. Poppies, however, would flourish on Flanders Fields, and for that reason... They are worn on Remembrance Day in Commonwealth member states and on Veterans Day in America. So what happened on Flanders Fields? First, the Battle of Passchendaele was not the first battle fought here. This was actually the third battle of Ypres. This was considered the Western Front and was a very strategic place because of the proximity of the railway line for supplying the German troops. This would end up being one of the most controversial battles of World War I, and is still hotly debated by scholars and historians today. Belgium is a culturally rich and diverse country. They have three official languages, Dutch, French, and German, as proof of that diversity. There's not too many places that you'll go where they'll claim that they have multiple languages as the official language. The name Belgium comes from a Roman province in the northern part of Gaul, known as Gallia Belgica. The area was inhabited by the Belgae before Rome invaded in 100 BC. The Belgae were a mix of Celtic and Germanic people. Moravian kings would eventually rule over Belgium due to the immigration of Germanic Frankish tribes during the 5th century. Belgium would become mostly independent in the 11th century. The country became very prosperous through its wool industry that would later prove to be an issue when France would go to war with England. France expected their vassals in Belgium to join them against England, but Belgium relied on English wool. So that kind of put them in a conundrum. Whose side do they take? Belgian peasants later rose up against the French and defeated them, and then they spent decades of trading out who would rule over them, going from Burgundian territory to Austrian rule to Spanish rule, then back to Austria, and then the French again by 1794. After Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, 
the great powers redrew the map of Europe and combined Holland and Belgium. The two countries proved to be too different, and Belgium would later become independent. In 1914, Belgium declared itself neutral, but that would mean little to Germany, and that brings us historically to where we need to be for this episode. As I said, Belgium had declared themselves neutral when World War I started, and King Albert was ruling in 1914. The Germans requested that they be given passage through the country so that they could attack the rear flank of the French. King Albert refused. So the Schleifen Plan was launched and the German army invaded Belgium on August 4th, 1914. So this serves as a good lesson that it doesn't matter if you say you want to be neutral. Generally speaking, you're going to get pulled into a war whether you want to or not, so you better pick a side. The race to the sea began in September and the first battle of Ypres would begin on October 19th and end on November 22nd. The end put a stop to the German advance in an unconventional way. The Belgian army flooded the Ypres plain by deliberately opening the locks of Vierna Ambach, Nieuport. The second battle of Ypres would come as a devastating surprise chemical attack by the Germans. On April 22, 1915, the Germans released chlorine gas and the effect was immediate, killing thousands of Allied troops and driving them back. The success of the gas was so surprising to the Germans that they lost their advantage by not giving a full attack. So you can imagine, this is the first time that they're using poisonous gas during a war, and they had no idea that it was going to do what it did. And so, I I don't know, they just rested back on their laurels and went, wow, we did a really good job there. Uh, Maybe we should jump on the surprise attack, but they didn't. And the battle would be over by May 25th, after the British basically blew the top off the hill where the German army was stationed. What they had done is they'd burrowed underneath it and blew it up with mines. This strategic spot had not seen its last battle, though. The third battle of Ypres would start on July 31st in 1917, and this would be the Battle of Passchendaele. The Germans had established a submarine base at Bouze, which was around 44 miles from Ypres. Germans had been using U-boats very successfully, and the British were on the verge of defeat by them. Let's talk a little bit about U-boats. The Germans called their submarines Unterseeboot, or U-boot for short, which we anglicized to U-boat. While many might think that U-boats were mainly battleships, they actually conducted a more damaging attack by raiding merchant ships and blocking shipping lanes. This cut off supplies. But the U-boats also sunk a large number of battleships, starting with four of them in September of 1914. So, as you can see, the Allied forces needed to do something to destroy this submarine base that's here in Belgium. They had to put a stop to the success of these U-boats, or they really were going to help the Germans to win the war. First, they would need to seize the railway line that ran behind the German front line there. General Douglas Haig of Britain would direct the attack. Haig took his plan to British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. The plan was to attack the Ypres salient, and if successful, the British could push all the way to the ports on the English Channel coast. And since I didn't know, and I imagine some of you don't, a salient is a military term for an area where one side is pushed into their opponent's territory and it looks like a bulge, so instead of having like a straight front line, you've got this straight front line and then it has this bulge that goes out, kind of like a big belly, and then it starts to go straight again. The three sides of this bulge, or of the salient, are surrounded. 
So the army that's within the salient is very vulnerable. Usually trench warfare is the form of battle that takes place around an area like this. And this is really where trench warfare is going to get a foothold in how fighting is done. And they're going to find out it's a horrible way to fight. It's going to happen during all of these great wars that we're going to have. And now that we look back at it, we see that there was a real, I mean, I'm not a military expert, but it's just really not a good idea. Because the problem you have is you've got all these trenches that you've dug into the ground. In order to move forward, you got to climb out of the trenches, run across some open land, and then hopefully there's another trench for you to get into. Well, the minute you get up out of the trench, you're being shot at because the other guys are still down in a trench. So it's just, it's not a real smart way to fight a war. But that's what they're going to do a whole lot here, especially during these battles. Nobody was crazy about Haig's plan, namely because the British barely outnumbered the Germans. There was a fear that there would be a great loss of life, and that fear was going to be realized. But the plan was approved. The offensive began with the detonation of 19 mines under the German lines at Messines Ridge. The explosions were heard all the way in London. Before talking about the battle to come, I need to explain how the land here was set up. Much of this was farmland, and there'd been an ancient drainage system set up to pull away the water and keep the land from getting soggy. All of the prior offensives had not only wiped out all of the vegetation, but the drainage system was destroyed. There was nothing to keep this area from becoming an apocalyptic quagmire. If there was any rain, especially a lot, these soldiers were going to be in big trouble. General Haig chose General Hubert Goh to lead the British offensive. Goh was unfamiliar with the Ypres salient, and that is probably why Haig chose him. He figured the man would do his bidding with aggression and without question, and this would prove to be a fatal error. So the British began their attack at 3.50 a.m. on July 31st, 1917. The British initially gained ground, but eventually were pushed back. Dozens of tanks rushed to help the British along with the French contingent. For the next month, fighting went back and forth as the ground became more sodden. Haig knew they were getting nowhere, so he asked the Canadians to attack the French city of Lens, occupied by the Germans, to try to draw some of the Germans away. The Canadians opted for a different strategy and were really successful. So it was a good thing they didn't actually follow what Haig wanted them to do. And Haig continued to falter. And by September, politicians in London were calling for him to pull out of the Battle of Passchendaele. He refused and pressed on. The Australians and Kiwis came to reinforce the British, but the results were the same as they'd been all along. The Allies would gain a little ground and then get pushed all the way back again. It kind of reminds me of watching two groups as they do a tug-of-war game. One starts to pull the other side, and then the other side starts to pull the other one, and they just go back and forth until all of them really come crashing down. The Germans also attacked with chemicals once again, but this time they used mustard gas rather than chlorine gas. The mustard gas was nicknamed Ypres after the city of Ypres. The gas blistered the skin, eyes, and lungs, and the death that you would suffer from this gas was very painful. By October, Haig was turning to the Canadians again. This time, he wanted them to come to Passchendaele. He was basically begging them to come. Their leader, General Curry, didn't want to come, but he had no choice, so he made sure to reinforce gun emplacements and he rebuilt roads. He was worried that there would be at least 16,000 Canadian casualties. 
and he really did not want to sacrifice his men in this way. It just amazes me how many people could be watching this Battle of Passchendaele as it's going back and forth and back and forth for months, only just slaughtering lots and lots of men. Nobody's getting anywhere, and yet they just keep throwing everything they've got at it. And of course, while we're talking about this battle, it doesn't mention all of the civilians and what they're going through. The Canadians arrived and assaulted the Passchendaele Ridge, but it made no difference. October had brought pure hell. The rain fell continuously. Shells rained down, too, with only a few being cushioned in the mud. But this mud that made the explosions less damaging also gunned up rifle barrels, slowed down stretcher bearers, and made it hard to detect the front line. You can imagine that there's these stretcher bearers coming through that want to pick up some of these casualties, and they're waist deep in mud. It's hard enough to try to carry a body when you've got just regular ground. I don't know how these men did this. Soldiers drowned in puddles, some being swallowed up as they slept. Private Richard Mercer described the horror of the mud in this way. Passchendaele was just a terrible, terrible place. We used to walk along these wooden duckboards, something like ladders laid on the ground. The Germans would concentrate on these things. If a man was hit and wounded and fell off, he could easily drown in the mud and never be seen again. You just did not want to go off the duckboards. And that's really, when you see pictures of them, if you Google it, that's what they look like, is just these boardwalk-type areas that are very narrow that serve as bridges basically across the mud. I don't even know how they built these. They must have done it when there was one side, was it a truce or something? November would change things, and the Canadians were successful as they launched their third large-scale attack at the ridge. They captured it, and took back the ruins of Passchendaele Village. One final assault captured the remaining high ground on November 10th, and the battle was over. In the end, the losses were huge. The Allied forces had 275,000 casualties, and the German had 220,000. So almost a half a million men. Curry's prediction of 16,000 Canadian casualties was almost spot on with 15,600. Canadians were awarded nine Victoria Crosses, the British Empire's highest award for military valor. Churchill would describe the Battle of Passchendaele as a watchword for the wasteful horror of the Great War. Another way to describe the battle would be a total waste. Within a few months, all the ground won would be regained by the Germans during the spring offensive of 1918. Two more battles would take place on the Flanders fields. The Germans would finally be pushed out. Many of the remnants from those battles still exist today, and there are dozens of cemeteries in the Ypres salient area for the dead from these World War I battles. There are memorials to the missing and unidentifiable as well. The Men in Gate at Ypres features a memorial with the names of 54,000 men who died in the area during World War I. Although the medieval town of Ypres was never occupied by the Germans during the Great War, it was basically razed by the battles. During the 1920s and 1930s, it was reconstructed brick by brick. Hundreds of thousands of troops and civilians died in Flanders. Conditions were inhumane. There can be no doubt that something sorrowful, fearful, angry, and negative has been left behind. What remains in the paranormal ether from the Battle of Passchendaele?
The village of Passchendaele experiences multiple hauntings. They've been reported by tourists and people who live there alike. Much of what they say they hear is the disembodied sounds of battle. And this is heard all throughout the village. And it's also accompanied by the screams of men. And if one listens hard enough, they can even hear machine gun fire in the distance. It's as if you're really in the middle of the battle. Whenever I hear about hauntings that accompany this kind of thing with disembodied sounds of battle, screams of people who are dying or hurt, or maybe you even see full-bodied apparitions, I generally look at them as being something residual, that they just have been time-stamped on this area. And why wouldn't they be with all the death? And I can only imagine what you must feel when you're sitting down in one of these trenches and just afraid for your life. BBC News Magazine journalist Chris Haslam wrote a piece entitled, Does the World War I Tourist Trade Exploit the Memory of the Fallen? In the article, he writes, My disquiet is caused by something less solid, a brooding sense of malevolence oozing from the earth, as though the violence has a half-life. I'm no believer in spooks, but the old lady I meet walking her dachshund most certainly is. Her name is Beatrice, and her dog is called Robert. As we amble down the muddy track, she tells me about mysterious lights seen flickering in no man's land, of half-heard screams in the night, and of corners of fields where generations of Robert's ancestors have refused to go. Another ghost story going back to this area during World War I talks about the German army that was stationed at Ypres having a weird experience. In 1918, a British captain named Hayward reported watching the Germans throw granite and shot at an empty piece of land. The soldiers clearly seemed to be fighting against something, but he couldn't see what it could be. The Germans finally retreated, and the British captured them. Captain Hayward asked the German colonel heading the contingent about what he'd witnessed. The German officer claimed that there had been a white cavalry in the field. What did he mean by a white cavalry? The Germans swore they saw white riders on white horses and that they trotted right through bullets and got closer and closer until the Germans had to retreat. Did they actually see a ghostly cavalry? And this calls into question, who were these ghosts? They seem to be fighting on the side of the Allies. This is on some sacred land in Belgium. Is this a former, I don't know, group, tribe, something coming to defend the land against the Germans? Because I'm thinking this White Calvary is not necessarily a group of World War I soldiers that had lost their life here that are fighting again. I'm thinking it's something even prior to that. I don't know for sure. And I don't know that they really saw what they thought they saw, but clearly if they're shooting at things and running away and getting captured because of that, they had to have felt like they were really seeing something. It's one of the coolest stories I've ever heard from a war. John McRae wrote in Flanders Fields, which I read to you earlier, and he wrote it for his friend Alexis Helmer, who had been killed in the war. McRae took care of wounded soldiers at the bunker in Ypres, He eventually died in 1918 of pneumonia. The site is now part of a memorial near the Ypres Canal. There are two ghosts reportedly here in this bunker. People claim to have seen the full-bodied apparitions of John McRae and his friend Alexis Helmer. Also, the echoes of disembodied gunshots are heard.
While I was doing research trying to find some of the ghost stories that go with the Battle of Passchendaele, I came across something that I put down as a little side note that does have a connection to this battle. There was a 2008 movie that was named Passchendaele, and it was shot in three locations, Calgary, Alberta, Fort McLeod, Alberta, and in Belgium. And it featured the experiences of a Canadian soldier at the Battle of Passchendaele. One of the places where part of the movie was filmed was in the Prince House in Heritage Park, Calgary. The house is said to be haunted. A grandfather clock in the downstairs parlor started to chime during the filming of the movie. It chimed and chimed, and the crew couldn't figure out how to stop it, so they called security to come help. The security forces were perplexed. They said that there was no way to stop the chiming because the clock had no innards. There was nothing inside to make it chime. So you can only imagine what this crew was thinking, because generally when a grandfather clock chimes, it chimes according to the time. So let's say they were filming during the middle of the afternoon. It's three o'clock. You expect it to chime three times and then stop. It did not do that. It just kept chiming and chiming. And they're like, you know, we can't film until that clock stops. And since they couldn't figure out how to get it to stop, here they call in the security. And wow, pretty weird to have this grandfather clock has no innards and it's going off. Now, several tour guides at the house have heard it chiming at other times, but nobody's heard it just continuously chime and chime and chime. So it seems almost as though it was as some kind of connection to this battle of Passchendaele. Had some spirits attached on to this film crew and come back to Calgary and this home where they were doing some filming and wanted to make themselves known? Or was this just the friendly ghost that they claim hangs out at this house wanting to be a part of the film. Much blood was spilt on the fields of Flanders. Battle of Passchendaele was the most devastating. Do the spirits from that time still roam that sacred ground? Is the Passchendaele battlefield haunted? That is for you to decide. It's always hard to do some of these episodes when we get to talking about battlefields because the loss of human life is just so devastating. One of the nice things, as I mentioned, though, is that Ypres was rebuilt and back into its quote-unquote medieval glory. So you would never know that this entire town had been leveled. And it is just full of graveyards and memorials. So if you are somebody who is very interested in learning more about the wars and paying your respects to those who died, this place in Belgium, Passchendaele, Ypres, Flanders, that whole area is a great place to go. For that kind of a connection. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. That's where you can find out how to follow me on all the social media out there. If you aren't, I post a lot of stuff up on Instagram. I'm tweeting all the time and we do follow you back. So if you follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we'll follow you back. And please like the page over on Facebook if you enjoy what you're hearing. We'd love to have you join us in the Spooktacular crew as well. If you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And you guys were very communicative this week. I had all kinds of comments coming at me and all kinds of emails. I want to thank Monica for your comment over on the History Ghost Bump website. Also heard from Christy on the website. She had commented on the Keith Albee Theater episode, which was number 239. She said the tunnel is there connecting to a hotel a street over. 
It was used for performers. And she believes that that tunnel is still used today. There's also tunnels that went to the river to unload cargo. And there's also an old dressing room under the theater where performers changed. And she put in parentheses, mostly black. So I'm assuming the black performers had to change out of their costumes underneath the theater. So thank you for sharing that with me, Christy. I want to thank Misty for her email, Selena for your email and for your suggestion. And also thank you to Beth for your email. And I'm so glad you heard me on Minds of Madness. That's fabulous. Wendy sent an email. She said, my husband and I really enjoy your podcast. We are currently listening to Lep Castle, which came into my family tree as I am a Carol descendant. Just wanted to let you know that their nuttiness crossed the ocean when they came to America. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Wendy. And then I had a couple of comments over on YouTube. Jennifer wrote under the Biltmore Estate episode, been there so many times. The first time I was a teenager, upon entering the library, I got the worst sense of absolute dread, a feeling I still remember all too well. Nothing happened again for years and many visits to the house until one visit when I was in the servant's dining room, which had been recently carpeted. For some reason, I was alone at the time, waiting for my then-husband when I heard heavy, heavy footsteps on hardwood. You can imagine I was like, what the F? And called out for my then-husband, who was still almost a corridor away. There was no one around, and I've never sensed anything else on my visits. So I imagine the way she describes this, it sounds like she heard heavy, heavy footsteps walking on hardwood, even though the room now had carpet on it. So very, very creepy. Thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. And Sigfan wrote under the Old Slave House episode, which was number 261. I went there in the 80s with my family. Yes, there are cells on the third floor. It is extremely hot in the attic during the summer months and unnerving. The salt wasn't mined. Rather, it was acquired by boiling brackish water in large iron cauldrons. The wells lie about a mile and a half south of the house, and the land around it looks like it had buildings on it at one time. Interestingly, Old Shawnee Town is about five miles east and has a massive bank building among what's left of the town. The entire county is full of history. And I imagine haunts. So thank you for sharing the description of the Old Slave House, Sigfan. I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard, Misty Jones, Selena, and Deborah Rybell. All of you ladies are going to be getting chest tombs. I don't know more. We've been getting a lot of ladies coming into the cemetery lately. Do you think it's because of you? I'm sexy and I know it. Sexy. I don't think that's exactly the word I would use when it came to you, but okay. Why don't you go ahead and share some eulogies with us? Eulogies by Mort Patrick Wolfe was a producer for two years. Here in the cemetery he is among creepy peers. He had lived in the city if independent and now he has spiritual transcendence. Paula Mitchell came from Lincoln's land. She shall have a burial that is grand. I have a feeling she will be happy here. 
because she held cemeteries dear. Julia Miller was a big fan of the monkeys. She thought Mike Nesmith was the bee's knees. She was also a lifelong parrotherd, and she's now about to be interred. Kelly Callahan was part of the Bizarro Book Club. She had lived among the Arizona scrub. She likes stories that were spine-chilling. I hope she finds the afterlife thrilling. Here lies the body of Eleonora Hole, whose last name rhymes with Hole, a city connected to the Zodiac Killer. As an HGB supporter, she was a pillar. Heather Isery had been supporting HGB since 2016. That makes her an executive producer queen. Her former home was in the Golden State. But her life has now reached checkmate. This eulogy is for Veronica Betts. She's going to be buried with my scary sounds cassettes. That way people will think this is a portal. To a hellish place for the immortal. Sweet dreams. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.